Hi, I'm Pastor John Schrader. We had some technical difficulties today with our live stream, so I'm posting this recording of the sermon. God bless your worship today. <clears throat> what will he do when he comes? Jesus asked that question during Holy Week in the final culminating days of his earthly ministry. He was standing in the temple courts, a temple that was built to worship him, talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people, spiritual leaders who were meant to bring Israel to him, the Messiah, but instead they were just intent on opposing him. What will he do when he comes? The owner of the vineyard. What's going to happen? 700 years before this day, Isaiah the prophet pictured Israel as God's own vineyard, planted in the promised land and gifted with everything. The law, the prophets, the priesthood, the temple. What more could I have done for my vineyard? God asked. I planted it with the choice vines. I built a wall and a wine press and a watchtower. But in Isaiah's picture, God came looking for fruits and all he found was stinking, rotting things. Now Jesus stands before the spiritual leaders of Israel and he asks the question, what will he do when he comes? The Lord had come to his city to teach his people, but the leaders of the spiritual life of Israel, they rose up against him. Uh, during this Holy Week, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys that were rival factions usually, they put aside their differences to join in opposing this man, this man who was in direct opposition to their worldview and their world, worldly positions. Now, when they questioned Jesus' authority, Jesus responded with three parables. In our lectionary, one was last week, one is this week, one is next week. The parables of the two sons, the parable of the wicked tenants, and the parable of the wedding banquet. These parables were meant to drive the leaders to self-evaluation and self-condemnation, really. Um, so with the parable of the sons, the tenants, and the wedding banquet, Jesus is talking about family ties and contractual obligations and the favor of a royal invitation. Each one of these things should have led to a proper response, but yet each parable showed that Israel's leaders were refusing to give God the fruits of faith that he was patiently seeking. So what will he do when he comes? Martin Franzman once wrote this about these three parables. He said, The three parables pretend the day when the father, the owner, the king finally says enough. Because Jerusalem is the home of the sons of God who will not render a son's obedience. Of workers in God's vineyard who will not give God what is God's. Of guests of God who will not come to God's feast. The gulf between Jerusalem and the obedient son of God who does the will of his father is unbridgeable. Jerusalem is ripe for judgment. So, today we hear Jesus tell a parable to these false religious teachers in Israel. And like so many of Jesus' parables, they, they, contain, they contain facts about life that the audience will nod their head and agree because Jesus uses things from all around them that they can completely understand. But, you know, a lot of Jesus' parables, they also then make something, some part of the story really exaggerated, maybe something all the way until it's almost absurd. 
the thing about Jesus' parables is he's constructing this scenario to teach us something. And so Jesus' parables are a lot like what uh, the poet Marianne Moore calls, um, she wrote, imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Right? Imaginary gardens with real toads. That's, that's a great picture of the parables of Jesus. So let's jump into this one today. Let's jump into this imaginary garden that Jesus creates and see what real toads we find inside. Okay, so Jesus starts out by saying a landowner planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press, built a watchtower. The people in the audience listening would have been nodding their heads in assent, at least internally, because this was commonly known stuff. The people of Israel, they understood viticulture. They could hear from this story that Jesus is telling that the landowner um, obviously gave the vineyard everything it needed to be successful. You could see the care and the intent of the landowner too. But the people that were listening also really knew their Old Testament well. And so they would have also thought of Isaiah's vineyard song, the one we talked about. Uh, they would have thought this story was going to have something to do with Israel. Well, so Jesus continues building this imaginary garden. Um, he goes by, by saying that the landowner finishes the vineyard, and then he rents it out to some tenant farmers and goes away on a long journey. Um, this is quite normal business practice. That wouldn't have been surprising to anybody there. Um, also quite normal is what happens next when um, the landowner sends servants at harvest time to collect some fruit from the harvest. I mean, that's how this worked, right? Tenant farmers got to farm land that didn't belong to them, but the rent was part of the harvest. That's just the way it worked. But in this case, the tenant farmers, they reneged. They didn't pay the rent. But uh, Jesus' story makes them worse than that. It's not just that they're deadbeats, it's that they're wicked. Uh, the first servant that came to collect the rent, they beat him up. So the landowner sent another one. This one they killed. So the landowner sent another one. This one they threw rocks at his head until he died of blunt and bloody trauma. Now, here's where Jesus' imaginary garden gets a little exaggerated. In Jesus' story, the landowner's response to these three, these three servants being assaulted and murdered, what does he do? He sends more servants. The parable says even more than he sent the first time. So at this point now he's sending seven, eight, nine servants in a row. And what does it say happened to them all? Treat them the same. They were beaten and murdered and stoned. Okay, now here's where Jesus takes the imaginary garden and makes something a little absurd about it. Uh, he says, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son. Who would do this? I mean, this, this is absurd, right? Who would, what man would think that after all those servants got abused or murdered that his, things were going to work out fine with his son? I mean, the audience knows what's coming, right? The audience, they know what the wicked tenants are going to do in this story. That's exactly what they did. They seized the son, they took him outside the vineyard, and they killed him. Then the question. The question that points to the real toad in this imaginary garden. Jesus said, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
So now, the religious leaders who were listening to this, they, they thought for sure they knew the answer. I mean, they knew their Old Testament, so they knew he was talking about Israel with this vineyard, right? And they also knew that then these, these wicked tenants must be people who were oppressing Israel, who are sinning against Israel, causing trouble in Israel. And they knew exactly who that was in Israel. That was the Romans, the Roman Empire that was occupying Israel and, and just putting God's people to the test. You know that's what the religious leaders were thinking because of how they answered the question, right? They're like, oh, what will he do when he comes? Well, he, those, he's going to make sure those wretches meet a wretched end. He's going to take away the vineyard from them and give them to some tenants who will give him his share of the crop. Very true. In fact, exactly true. But they still hadn't seen the real toad hiding in the imaginary garden. So Jesus drops the hammer, right? He said, have you never read in scripture? And then he is going to quote Psalm 118. And what's, what's great about this, Jesus says, you've never read Psalm 118? Psalm 118 was used all the time by the people of Israel in their worship. So these worship leaders, yes, of course they had read a Psalm 118. But Jesus' point is you might have read it hundreds of times, but you missed the point. You never understood what it meant. In fact, the last time these religious leaders heard Psalm 118 was probably a couple of days earlier because that was a psalm the people were chanting on Palm Sunday when they welcomed Jesus as Messiah. The people welcomed him as the Son of God sent by his Father. Jesus was saying, every time you've read Psalm 118, you've missed it. You've missed me. I am the son sent by the recklessly patient landowner. And uh, Jesus makes a really great play on words here to make the point to them too. Uh, it, it's in a different language, but you'll, you'll be able to understand it. So like the word for son is ben. The word for stone is eben. Ben, eben. Ben, eben. Son, stone. Son, stone. Jesus said, I am the son that the recklessly patient landowner sent, Ben, Eben, then he quotes Psalm 118, Eben, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What will he do when he comes? Well, he's going to take the vineyard away from you, you leaders of Israel, and he's going to give it to a people who will produce its fruit. You can take the son, the Ben, Eben, and kill him on a cross of wood. But in his crucifixion, God will work the great reversal from death to life, from sin to holiness, from heaven, from earth to heaven, from broken to restored. Right? Here's the son, the Ben, looking his enemies in the eye and proclaiming that opposing him was impossible. Because killing the son meant defeat for his enemies and victory for God, as prophesied in Psalm 118. Ben, Eben, the son, the stone. God will lift his son from death and use the stone rejected by men to be his capstone. Jesus', Jesus enemies need to be warned. You can oppose the son actively and you will find yourself on your face. You can ignore the son at your peril and you will find yourself ground to powder. Your rejection of the ben, eben, the son, the stone will not mean the failure of God's plan. It just means you stand self-condemned. And they knew it. They knew that he was talking about them. 
confronted and condemned, how did they respond? By, by repenting? No. No, they just hated him all the more, proving with their deeds exactly what Jesus had revealed about their hearts. Imaginary garden, real toad. So what about you? What about me? What toads might we find in this imaginary garden that Jesus constructed uh, to teach us about life in the kingdom? It's an important question because you're in this parable too. You are the people he was talking about when he said what will happen when he comes. He's going to take the vineyard away from you religious leaders and he's going to give it to you, a people that will produce its fruit. That's who we are. We are people that produce the fruit that God desires because we're people that worship the Messiah as Lord and Savior. We are people who rejoice at the stone, the Ben-Eben, rejected by builders who has become our cap and cornerstone. Well, today, if you were listening in worship, all the readings and all the prayers, they focused our attention on what we good tenants, what our lives will look like. We call this sanctification, right? The, the process by which the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And, and the point God is making to us today, we good tenants of the vineyard, is that we have every reason to cheerfully, willingly, generously produce fruits of faith. I mean, just consider God's reckless patience with us. We were planted in baptism. We were bought with blood. We were guarded by angels. We've been made heirs of heaven. Of course that's going to make a difference in how we live our life, right? Our lives will look different than the world around us because we are not destined for this world. Our lives are going to be filled with fruits of faith. What does that look like for you? I don't know. Go home and love your spouse. Love your spouse. See in them what they are, not what they're not. Protect your relationship in all the little things you do and in all the big things you do. Go to work tomorrow and do your job with such honor and integrity that everyone around you can see that you are a child of your Heavenly Father. Go home tonight and parent your children. Um, parent them in a way that shows you know that the most important thing in their life is not their recreational life or their, or their personal life, but it's their spiritual life. Be a member of this community and live with such charity towards all that people might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why? Because we're the tenants God's given in a garden that was limitlessly full of grace. Of course we're going to be different from this world. In our second reading, Paul tells us that we can work hard at it, this life of faith of ours. He said, uh, I press on to take hold. I press on uh, to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward. I heard somebody say this week that, uh, that effort does not mean earning. In other words, Paul calls on us to put great effort into our lives of faith. That doesn't mean we're trying to earn a spot in heaven. No, that was given to us. Given to us completely free. But this Christian life that we live, it's worth the effort. We sometimes need to remember that the kingdom of God comes from limitless grace. But the kingdom of God also comes with a call to limitless obedience. To live as the good tenants. To produce the fruits of faith that our Father is looking for. 
our efforts don't get us a place in heaven, not at all. Our efforts simply reflect, reflect what God's made us to be. Like Paul said, uh, only let us live up to what we've already attained. We are the good tenants. We welcome his son. We share in his harvest. And we bring forth fruits that make our father proud. God grant that 